Good morning, and thank you for joining me here this morning on the first post that I have for Holy Week. We're calling it the Messiah. And our scripture reading for this week is Mark 11, verse 11 to 33. That's our scripture reading actually for today, excuse me. As we go through this podcast, I'm looking forward to sharing some insights with you from the scriptures that record Christ's last week in ministry over here. So let's take a quick look, and I'm going to get right into my podcast. So again, this week, we're going to try to look at the incredible events that characterize Lord Jesus's final week of ministry in, quote, real time. In this post, I'm touching on events that happened on the Monday and Tuesday after his triumphal descent on the Mount of Olives. The goal of this week's post is to spark a fresh love for our Messiah. So Mark 11, verse 11 to 33, show us both the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. He was God, yet he was human, and we see him busily fulfilling prophecies with each beat of his glorious heart. Let's zero in on this. Monday morning. First, we see that Jesus is a planner. He's not the kind of guy who jumps at things impetuously. Instead, he surveys the situation and takes the appropriate action. Mark 11, 11 shows us that he came into Jerusalem and, quote, looked round about upon all things, end quote. Then he turns around and leaves. In many ways, Christ here acts like Nehemiah, who just surveyed everything before starting his work or rebuilding Jerusalem. And you can read about this in Nehemiah 2, verse 11 to 15. This is good practice for all of us in our natural and spiritual lives. As Christians, we shouldn't just jump at new things or be trigger-happy in responding to situations. We should prayerfully sit back and look at what we see from a word standpoint and not an emotional one. Christ was about to take dramatic action and fulfill prophecy, but first he stops and assesses the situation. We don't know what he saw, but whatever it was, it didn't discourage him from the work that he had to do. Neither should we let what we see around us breed doubt or fear or insecurity in our life. Instead, let us align the realities of our world with the word of God and go forward to fulfill what God has called us to do in Christ's name. On the road to Jerusalem. Second, Christ wasn't just an observer. He was, a mission, he was on a mission to redeem you from the power of the grave. And the next morning, which for us would be Monday, he makes his way to Jerusalem from Bethany. This is a trip of about two miles, but on this short trip, we see a powerful reminder of the character of our leader. Let's join the disciples as they're following him. There had to be a sense of anticipation and probably fear. No one knew exactly what was going to happen when Jesus got to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples are thinking Christ is definitely going to proclaim himself king. After the triumphal entry, how could he not? Others are wondering how the priests and religious leaders will react because they all want to kill him. But Jesus has something else on his mind. He stops abruptly near a leafy fig tree and starts to look for food. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment. Jesus is about to claim his throne, or so everyone thinks. In a time like this, why focus on food? I don't know about you, but if I was about to take over the world, looking for figs would be the last thing on my mind. Even worse, this isn't fig season. Fig trees in Israel typically start bearing fruit in late April, but here we are probably about two weeks before that time. But we see the master has a purpose for everything that he does. Not only do we see how human he was, getting hungry and hoping, not operating by vision, but hoping to find some food on the tree, but we also see him for what he is, the wisest teacher that ever lived. Jesus curses the fig tree. In other words, he calls for its life. He says, no one's going to eat from you ever again. Through this experience, he's about to radically alter his disciples' perception of their relationship to God. 
Now let's go to the temple. Let's imagine we're standing with the disciples as Jesus enters Jerusalem. We see him just ahead of us, flanked by Peter, James, and John. He goes straight to the temple, and we know that the tension which has been brewing between our leader and the Sanhedrin is about to spill over. The armed temple guards and Jesus stare at each other for a few moments across the courtyard on the outer part of the temple. Peter's right hand drops to the hilt of his sword. Around us are the money changers and the sellers of lambs and doves, each screaming out their prices, and crowds of worshippers give our group a wide berth as they go toward the inner court. And then it happens. For many people, this is probably the hardest part of Jesus' ministry to accept. Christ, the Lord of love, violently takes over the temple. This isn't a quick emotional flare-up. Christ's anger lasts long enough for him to braid a rope together and beat everyone out of the temple. Again, I want you to remember that this is the same God that thundered on Mount Sinai, but he is veiled behind human flesh. This is the same God whose wrath drowned the world in Noah's day. This is the same God that is coming soon to cleanse not only the temple, but the whole world. Jesus was angry, yes. But his anger was fueled by his desire to see God's word accomplished. Here, even in his anger, he was fulfilling prophecy. See Psalm 69 verse 9. Now here's my challenge to you. Even when you're angry, make sure your anger submits itself to the will of God. Let your emotions and actions be subject to thus saith the Lord at all times. Christians should not curse or be crude in their anger. Jesus did none of these things, yet he was really upset because he was upholding the family honor. His father's house was being violated. His father's name was being disgraced by those who claimed to worship him. And he, as the son of God, was on the scene to set things straight. Today, we are God's representatives. We are here to set the record straight. We don't need the tables of the money changers or the dove sellers to be overthrown, but we do need the idols of unbelief, hypocrisy, and churchianity to be demolished. Paul told us that we are here to cast down spiritual enemy strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 to 5. As sons and daughters of the Father, it is our responsibility to tear down every attempt Satan makes to pervert true worship in our lives into something less than it was intended to be. The Father's name and honor is at stake and the enemy is hard at work. Let us be busy. I'd like to point out that Jesus dominated the floor at this stage. The Bible said that he would not allow any man to carry any vessel through the temple. Verse 16. He was clearly in control of the situation. He was the judge, the Lord, determining what would and would not get through. All pretended religious authority had to bow to the authority of this carpenter from Galilee, for in him the God-man lay true authority. And if he's in us, that puts the control of the situation in our hands today. Under his authority, you, not church, not society, not the church, not the devil, decides what comes in and out of your life. Let us break the power of the enemy by refusing him to push anything through in our life. Let's keep this temple clean. Tuesday morning. Jesus did not often stay in cities. Frankly, I can't think of a time the Bible tells us that he ever spent the night in Jerusalem, beside, presumably, from when he was left there by Mary and Joseph at age 12. So after cleansing the temple, he again leaves Jerusalem. He's an early riser, so we see him on the move again toward Jerusalem in the morning the next day. We're right behind Peter when we pass the fig tree that Jesus cursed just yesterday. Master! Peter shouts, look at this! The fig tree you cursed is dead! We all turn to stare at the fig tree, our minds struggling to absorb the reality of this latest miracle. For it is indeed a miracle. 
Trees don't just die and decay overnight. And this tree was healthy enough to bear fruit 24 hours ago. Something has clearly happened. Now, I want you to notice something you may have overlooked. Jesus knows what this week holds for him. The masses that throng him now will turn against him in just a few days. He will be betrayed, arrested, verbally and physically abused. He will be shamed, stripped naked, and murdered in one of the cruelest ways possible. So with all that on his mind, why teach this lesson now? Because the power of our relationship to God is the most important lesson we can learn. In verses 22 to 26, the Messiah shows us that he is here to restore all the power and benefits that were lost after, lost after the fall. He taught us that faith is based on forgiveness, that restoration of our relationship to God allows us to have a restored relationship with our fellow man. Essentially, his entire ministry is summed up in these three verses. In this situation with the fig tree, he teaches us and gives us a snapshot view of all that he is here to accomplish. Fellow Christians, God make no, makes no mistakes. Jesus taught by example, not just words. Here he showed us that the same power and life that flowed in him is more than able to change circumstances or move mountains in our own lives if we approach him on the basis of undiluted faith. It took time for Jesus' word to come to pass within 24 hours, but it happened. And we ought to be encouraged right here. If he had the spirit without measure and it took time for his word to materialize, we shouldn't be discouraged when our confession of his word in faith takes time to materialize for we have just a portion of his spirit. Believe his word cannot fail. I'm going to quote here from the message, The Pergamian Church Age by Reverend William Marion Branham. He said nothing. He said, therefore, if you say to this mountain, be moved and don't doubt in your heart because what you are deity speaking, you believe it. Bible said so. And whatever you say shall come to pass, if you'll not doubt, if you can get all of the, the world bred out of you, let the Holy Spirit make you a full son or daughter of God. No world, no condemnation, no doubt. What is it then? It's no more you. It's God in you. Then you take his word. It's a promise and say, Father, it's your promise. The final authority. Satan always likes to challenge authority, and he was busy doing just that through the religious leaders in Christ's day. Clearly, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. But despite the fallibilities of the clergy, Christ showed us that the word is the ultimate authority in verses 27 to 33 of Mark 11. And when it speaks, nothing can confound it. Identify with that word and you will never be ashamed. May God bless your day. Keep your minds on him as you go through this week. And we'll be back here again tomorrow.